there was the old rugged cross, hymn number 327. 327. Philippians 2 8 says, He humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. 327. sing all four verses on a hill far away stood an old rugged cross the emblem of suffering and shame and I love that old cross where the dearest and best for a world of lost So I cherish the old rugged cross Till my trophies at last I lay down I will cling to the old rugged cross And exchange it someday for So despised by the world has a wondrous attraction for me. For the dear Lamb of God left his glory above to bear it to dark Calvary. So I change. Someday to my home for a 
his glory forever I share looking forward to that so I cherish the old rugged cross till my trophies at last I lay down I will cling to Standing hymn number 693, 693, a shelter in the time of storm, the rock of my strength and my refuge is in God, Psalm 62, 7, amen, he is our shelter, our refuge, our mighty tower, well we could go on and on. I can't thank all of them, but it's a lot of them there, you could say, okay? Amen. The Lord's our rock, in Him we hide, a shelter in the time of storm. Secure whatever He'll be tied, a shelter in the time of storm. Oh, Jesus is a rock in a weary land, a weary land, a weary land. Oh, Jesus is a rock in a weary land, a shelter in the time of storm. A shade by day, defense by night, a shelter in the time of storm. No fears alarm, no foes of fright, a shelter in the time of storm. Oh, Jesus is a rock in a weary land, a weary land, a weary land. Oh, Jesus is a rock in a weary land, a shelter in the time of storm. The shelter in the time of storm we'll never leave our safe retreat a shelter in the time of storm oh jesus is a rock in a weary land a weary land a weary land oh jesus is a rock in a weary land a shelter time of storm oh rock divine oh refuge dear a shelter in the time of storm be thou our helper ever near a shelter in the time of storm oh Jesus is a rock in a weary land a weary is a rock in a weary land, a shelter in the time of storm. Amen. You may be seated.
right. Well, I think this is three Sunday nights in a row that Sharon's been the only one on that side, so I think someone's going to have to switch over. <laughs> Looks like y'all are shunning her or something. Yeah. She's, <laughs> she's coming to this side. <laughs> now, now Miss Joanne's going to have to come over here. Oh, Miss Joanne's going to be over here. Okay. Now you got to come back because that would miss Joanne's not alone. Good. We'll have Cammy play some music and then everybody, everybody stand up and walk around while the music plays and when she, when she hits stop, then everybody's got to find a pew and sit. Oh, me. Well, let's uh, take a... Oh, here we go. She's starting the music. All right. <laughs> Next, we'll break out a pinata or something, too. We'll have a whole party. But anyway. Oh, man. We've, yeah, we've lost control. All right. Take your Bible. Turn with me to Exodus chapter 15 tonight. Exodus chapter 15. Exodus 15. We're going to be looking at verses 22 through 27 tonight. We'll get into chapter 16 as well, but just for sake of time, we'll, we'll read this to start us off and we'll pray. Uh, we're looking at this tonight as we've been dealing with the wilderness and granted, uh, we've only scratched the surface on the wilderness. Uh, there's another 30 sermons about the children of Israel in the wilderness. I mean, you look at Mount Sinai, the Ten Commandments, uh, them uh, committing idolatry, uh, Moses, uh, the tabernacle. I mean, there, there's so much. It is a whole, whole long study. But, um, you know, the, I felt the Lord wanting us to sort of look at some of this on Sunday night to sort of encourage us, look at some practical things in our life. Uh, by looking at the children of Israel there in the wilderness and see what God has for us, especially as we're preparing for the conference coming up next week. You know, we're just uh, less than a week away uh, from, it, from everything kicking off. And so, um, to be honest, the Lord has helped us, I think, through this time as we prepare, and I believe the Lord's going to help us during the conference. But I'm sick of preaching about suffering and difficult times, to be honest with you. Um, but nevertheless, uh, the, the Lord has shown us, and shown me at least, I don't know about y'all, but He's shown me a lot of things uh, that I've needed. So, uh, read with me, Exodus 15, verses 22 through 27. We'll pray and jump into things. So Moses brought Israel from the Red Sea, and they went out into the wilderness of Shur, and they went three days in the wilderness, and they lived happily ever after. Mm-mm, no, they found no water. That's not good when you're in the wilderness. When they came to Marah, they could not drink of the waters of Marah, for they were bitter. Therefore, the name of it was called Marah. Now, I don't know about y'all, but when I read the Bible, sometimes it makes me laugh. Verse 23 makes me laugh because they came to Marah, and then they could not drink the waters of Marah, for they were bitter, and therefore they named it Marah. You make it make sense, but hey, it's there. It, Marah is the name of this place, is what they name it, because they go there, and it's bitter water. We'll look at that here in a little bit. Uh, but it says, The people murmured against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? And he cried unto the Lord, and the Lord showed him a tree, which when he had cast into the waters, the waters were made sweet. There he made for them a statute and an ordinance, and there he proved them. And said, If thou wilt diligently hearken to the voice of the Lord thy God, and wilt do that which is right in his sight, and wilt give ear to his commandments, and keep all his statutes, I will put none of these diseases upon thee, which I have brought upon the Egyptians, for I am the Lord that healeth thee. That's a good one to underline right there. And they came to Elam, where there were twelve wells of water, and threescore and ten palm trees, and they encamped there by the waters. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you this night. We're grateful that we can sing uh, of your praises tonight and to, to speak uh, and to sing of the shelter in time of storm and all these things, Lord, of who you are and what you've done for us. We're grateful for that tonight. I pray that you'd help us now 
uh, through the preaching of your word, Lord, that we would see um, what we need tonight, ultimately that we would see Christ, our, our sufficient supply of all things, and Lord, that you would show us that the wilderness has, has meaning, and has purpose, and Lord, that you're using it for our good and for our, uh, for our good and your glory. We ask all this in Jesus' name, amen. Tonight we're going to be looking at are we wasting or winning in the wilderness? Are we wasting or winning in the wilderness? I believe, as we've talked about the past few weeks, we often waste our trials. We often waste our circumstances that God allows into our life. Now, he puts these things into our life not to try to trip us up or to bop us on the head or to uh, go, hey, I, I just want to see my child fall down flat on their face, right? That, that's not the case at all. You ever seen a parent intentionally try to trip their child just to watch them fall? No? Okay. Well, at least y'all aren't admitting, at least. That's a good thing. But, but here, we don't, uh, I don't think for one moment that God is sitting up in heaven going, I really want to trip them up today and watch them get hurt. No, that's not the case at all. Uh, he wants, though, however, to use the wilderness wanderings. And it's only going to be a wandering in the wilderness because uh, they lose focus of who is leading them. That's what causes 40 years of, of wandering in the wilderness. Now, God had led them through the wilderness, and God was going to lead them through the wilderness for their protection, ultimately to bring them into the promised land. It should have been a short, a short journey through the wilderness, but nevertheless, it turned out to be quite the, the long journey, which you can read about over uh, in Numbers and Deuteronomy specifically. Uh, later on in Exodus as well, you'll get into uh, that. But you're going to find that their rebellion is what causes that wandering uh, to go as long as it did. But as we come into this, we need to see, uh, the, first of all, the, the Mara in the wilderness and what takes place here. Uh, we're going to get into chapter 16 in a little bit. We'll see the manna in the wilderness and we'll bring this all together and, and see then the, the meaning in the wilderness and, and the, what the whole point of it is all about. But here in verse 22 through 27, here in chapter 5, sort of the situation goes like this, sort of to catch us back up to speed. Here's what's been taking place over the past few chapters. God has delivered them from Egypt and the armies by having his people miraculously travel through the Red Sea on dry ground. Now remember, that was after he brought about 10 separate plagues over several months of time and ultimately delivered them over to the Red Sea and had led them by a, a pillar of cloud by day and pillar of fire by night. He had given his abiding presence, and we had already uh, talked about uh, the past couple weeks that he took not away the pillar of the cloud by day nor the pillar of fire by night from before the people. So therefore, we see that God was with them all the way. But it did not take long in their journey where they began to doubt the Lord, even though he delivered them, even walking through the Red Sea. Now, God has as well given his abiding presence and protection as he fulfills his promises to his covenant people. Therefore, they ought to trust him. He has given them everything that they need thus far. He has provided everything. The, not only the plagues to uh, show who he is and remind his own people there in Egypt, who he is and his wealth to show the Egyptians that there is only one true God, but he has delivered them from Egypt. He has taken them into the wilderness for their protection. He has given his presence. He has given them everything they could ever possibly need. What we're going to find is it's just not quite enough for them. Now, God has proven himself faithful in slavery and suffering. Therefore, Moses and Others lead the people to worship the Lord for the victory that he has given them. And this takes place at the end of Exodus 15, right before this passage. Uh, it talks about uh, the whole first portion of chapter 15. You might see it in your Bible called the Song of Moses. Uh, it, it would be a psalm as well. But here um, we see different bits and pieces of it throughout the Bible. But uh, here Moses breaks out into praise and worship and the Lord to describe and to tell of God's goodness and greatness and His might to deliver His people as, as the Redeemer and the covenant maker and sustainer uh, for His people. 
And then it talks about Mar- uh, Miriam. Uh, she took a timbrel. She starts uh, leading the people. The people worship together. Uh, they, they sing to the Lord. And it's a great time. Now, it shows us as well that just because things go bad does not mean, or just because we're in the wilderness does not mean that we should not worship. Rather, it means that we ought to worship. We think about how the Apostle Paul is sitting there in prison. And what happens there in the book of Acts? He starts singing along with his cohort and his band of merry men. They start singing and praising the Lord. And what happens? The Lord brings about an earthquake and takes all the shackles off and then even saves uh, the Philippian jailer from, from killing himself. And, and then uh, his family gets saved and baptized as well. So we see that God uses difficult times. Certainly in here, the same can be said. But notice how quickly we can go from praising the Lord and all is well and all is right to then everything and our life seems bitter. Now in this, as we look now, after their great salvation, the trials of the wilderness test their faith in order to grow their faith. And here they come to another one of their, their tests here to see how they will trust the Lord or if they will truly trust the Lord. Now let's ask ourselves tonight, after all that they have seen, after all that they even see daily, which thus far is the abiding presence of God Almighty Himself revealing Himself, or really even shrouding Himself in the beauty and in the, uh, the veil of the, the cloud by day and the fire by night. If you saw that every day for all these days and weeks that they've seen this, you've seen the plagues take place, you've seen the Red Sea part, and you've walked across it on dry land, and now here you are. Do you think at this point that you're going to trust Him? Well, I'd like to think I would. Right? We'd all like to think that we would. And what we find out is you and I are probably a whole lot like more, more like Israel than what we care to admit. And here's what happens. Things get tough for them. Here they come three days journey in the wilderness and they found no water. Now here's the idea of the wilderness. The wilderness is not like going out in the woods here, taking a little hike. It's not like they're up on the Blue Ridge Parkway and, and sightseeing here. Right? They're trying to get to the promised land, and they don't know where they're going. They just know that they're following the Lord in this, and He's leading them. And here they go three days. they got no water, and they've got a million-plus people, more than likely two-plus million people, uh, to, to feed and, and to water, as well as everything that's with them. And so in the wilderness, it is much more like a desert than it is the woods around here. Now with that, what do you know about the, anybody ever been in the desert? I've watched survival shows, so that's close enough. I know this. If you've watched those survival shows, if you've been in the desert, or how about this, even on a hot day here on the mountaintop in the middle of June or July or August, what do you need? Water. You can go longer without food than you can water. You go without water after a few days, you're not going to survive. You can go a a while uh, without food, right? Now, as they come... They do find some water. It says they come to Marah, and they could not drink of the waters of Marah, for they were bitter. Therefore, the name of it was called Marah. And the people murmured in all this. Here's what happens is that every one of these trials, including this one, God has already not only known about, but foreordained so that we, they would learn to trust Him. However, what we find is that God lays this out before them. He goes, all right, you're tired, you're thirsty, and you've got no water, and then the water that you find is bitter. It'll make you sick. So, if I can part the Red Sea, do you think that I can make that water drinkable? And for us who have read the Bible, the easy answer is, well, of course. So there's nothing to worry about. But for here, imagine, put yourself in these shoes. You're a parent walking along in the wilderness with your kids. You don't know where you're going. You've got crazy old Moses who's leading you there with his staff. 
You've got the abiding presence of God, which is comforting, but also you're, you're wondering, okay, it's day three, we've got no water, and then this water is making us sick, so what am I supposed to do? I've got to take care of myself, I've got to take care of my kids, all this stuff here. So we'd like to think that we would trust the Lord, but when things get really real and get really desperate, that shows our real faith here. If you read, and I encourage each one of you to read, uh, George Mueller's uh, autobiography, he talks much about prayer and answered prayer. There were times when he, uh, he was used by God to uh, found uh, several orphanages, uh, are, which are still in existence today in schools for children. Uh, thousands came to know Christ as they grew up uh, under his tutelage and things. But not one time did he go out to raise funds and money. He simply trusted the Lord and prayed. And what happened in the process of all this is as you read his accounts, is that they would have a morning where they wake up and they have enough to get the kids breakfast, but they don't have enough coal for uh, the fire that night, let alone anything to eat for supper. And they would pray. And then sometime between then and supper time, the Lord would answer prayer and someone would just be coming on by and they'd say, hey, we've got a wagon full of bread and coal. Would you guys use it? Well, of course. We'll praise the Lord now. Coal's taken care of and bread's taken care of. And this would happen day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year. And the Lord provided. He stands as just an example in our modern day of what it means to live a life of prayer and trust and faith in the Lord that God will provide for all things. Now, the people of Israel had seen greater things than what you and I could have ever imagined. And yet here they face one more obstacle, which isn't even as big of an obstacle as the Red Sea was. And what do they do? They get awfully upset. Now here, the word Mara is bitter. After journeying three days without water, they finally find some, and it's too bitter for them to drink. The bitter water, though, is not nearly as bitter as the people had become. Here, their doubts, their unbelief, had caused their hearts to become bitter towards Moses, the leadership, and ultimately, the Lord Himself. As we see, it says in verse 24, and the people murmured against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? Now remember, it wasn't that long ago, even just two chapters ago, they were going, well, what'd you bring us out here to the Red Sea for? We could have just died back in Egypt and had graves there. We got nothing out here. You know, we, we've got all this stuff that we could have had there, and they forget they were enslaved there. They forget what life was like and what it could have been like. They forget what God was doing, had done, and was going to do in delivering them to the Promised Land. And here's the issue with us today. When we lose sight, of who God is, what He has done, what He's currently doing, and what He has promised to do in the future, this is where we start to doubt. This is where we get discouragement. This is where we begin uh, to doubt His goodness and His plan for our life. And now we begin to murmur and complain. You might murmur and complain against Moses, but here's the idea. When they are murmuring against Moses, Moses is what? He's acting as a mediator between the Lord and His people. Therefore, when they are complaining against Moses, they're ultimately complaining against God because they think that he ought to be doing things their way. Now, you take two million people, now you've got two, many, two million different uh, personalities and opinions and thought processes of how things ought to go. So you've got some who are backseat drivers. They'll tell you how to drive. They'll tell you what exits to take, what back roads to take. Imagine two million of those. And now Moses is being called by God to lead these people, and they're murmuring against him. And so what does Moses do? He does the right thing. He cries to the Lord. And here's what God does. God doesn't make it rain. God doesn't give them water filtration systems or tell them to stop and dig a well. 
what happens? The Lord showed him a tree. Now, here's what's interesting. We don't have a record that Moses had already seen the tree or that the tree appeared. And so it's one of two things. Either the Lord just all of a sudden pops a tree into the ground and says, hey, see that tree? Or he opens up Moses' eyes to see that tree and he goes, see that tree? Here's what you're going to do. And here's what happens. He says, he showed him a tree which when he had cast it into the waters, the waters were made sweet. There he made for them a statute and an ordinance, and there he proved them. Here's God's supply. God teaches Moses that there are healing properties in this tree that can make what was bitter sweet. You and I think when we come to such a problem like this where there's such desperation that God should just make everything all better and hunky-dory, but what does God do? He teaches. God reveals a little bit more. God, even in the midst of the trial and in the midst of the test for His own people and for their faith, what does He do? He says, well, I've got another pop quiz for you. Are you going to trust me now that you can chop this tree down, throw it in the water, and that it will make the water okay to drink? It sounds foolish and crazy to most of us. But God's ways are not our ways. And think about this. God is simply going, if I tell you to do this, will you do it or not? Now, it would make no earthly sense. They, it doesn't even appear that they had seen the tree or cared about the tree or thought anything about, hey, you know, I wonder if we put that tree in the water, it'll make the water taste good. How many of y'all have ever looked at a bucket of water and thought, you know, I wonder if I pull some branches from my backyard, stuck it in there, it would taste good? Of course not. But here, this is God's way to show that He provides. And what we're seeing throughout the wilderness is ultimately time and time again, He's going to give us pictures and types pointing to Christ. To, the, four, uh, the, to the, the coming Messiah who will ultimately be the Redeemer of His people. Now notice this. I find this quite interesting. The Lord showed him a tree. The tree points us to the person and work of Christ upon Calvary's tree. Where He drank bitterness so that we may drink the sweetness of His saving grace. Turn with me for a moment. First uh, Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2. We often refer to Jesus' cross or Calvary's hill, but it is often referred to as a tree as well. You know what a tree is made out of? Wood. You know where wood comes from? Trees. See how they're related? Makes sense, doesn't it? Now here, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21 tells us this. For even hereunto were ye called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that we should follow his steps, who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth, who when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judges, judgeth righteously, who his own self bare our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, being dead to sin, should live unto righteousness by whose stripes you were healed. For ye were a sheep going astray, but are now returned unto the shepherd and bishop of your souls. Here, when God shows Moses there's a tree that will make the bitterness sweet, we are getting pointed directly to what Christ has accomplished for us when He bled and died upon Calvary's tree. There it has been called or referred to in songs and poems and, and, and preaching and writings as the mercy tree. And it certainly is just that. It is a mercy tree, not a tree of Mara of bitterness, but one that takes the bitterness that Jesus drank there on that tree and offers to us who will drink by faith, offers to us what? Sweetness of His grace, the sweetness of salvation. Is there anything sweeter than that? 
here's what we find is that God is teaching Moses a much greater lesson. and He's ultimately teaching us who Christ is and what He's done for us. Pink writes, Nothing can sweeten the bitter cup of our earthly experiences except reposing under the shadow of Christ. This then is how we are to use the cross in our daily lives. To regard our Christian trials and afflictions as opportunities for having fellowship with the sufferings of the Savior. Here's what we need to see in our life. So ultimately, every moment of our suffering in the wilderness of life is to cause us to rest in the rock of ages. It is to cause us to hide under the shadow and of, of who the Lord is, to go to the cross, not merely for our salvation from sin, but for our sanctification, for our rest, for our nourishment, that we go to the cross. We are to be a people of the cross. We are not merely to think about the cross as one that simply frees us from sin and delivers us from hell, but the cross is needed daily in the life of the Christian. The cross is a picture of the daily life of the Christian. It is a death to self. It is one of suffering and shame, but yet one uh, that, though, uh, that those who are in Christ, it leads to something far greater. We are told in Hebrews uh, chapter uh, 12, verse 1-3, through 3, that the Lord, uh, that Jesus Christ, He bled and died upon that tree, despising the, the, the shame of it, but He was looking forward to the glory that was to come. He was looking beyond the cross and saw the empty tomb. He saw His ascension. He saw His calling of His church back home to Him, His bride to be with Him. He saw uh, the second coming of the earth. He saw the millennial kingdom. He saw eternity. He saw all of it. And therefore, He persevered and laid down His life. So here we continue and we see that God supplies not only what they need physically to drink, but He supplies a spiritual lesson for them. One, that God provides all things, but that ultimately their salvation and the bitter waters of this life in the wilderness will be turned to sweet waters of grace and salvation, redemption, through one who will die upon that tree for us. And so for you and I, because we are New Testament saints, we're able to look back and see what God was teaching, whereas for them, they are seeing with a veil yet still on, they are still seeing where they cannot truly look beyond and see what the Lord is teaching them here. But nevertheless, we are able to. And here, uh, we'll get into verse 26 in a little bit, but he calls them and says, if you will diligently hearken to the voice of the Lord thy God and will do that which is right in his sight and will give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes, I will put none of these diseases upon thee, for I have brought thee upon the Egypt, for I brought uh, that I, which I have brought upon the Egyptians, for I am the Lord that healeth thee. It is God's work that saves His people. It is God's work that redeems His people. It is God's uh, plan and design and desire to save and to redeem. And this is what He has provided for us in Christ. Ultimately, the desperation and the doubt shows us our dependence upon the Lord, that without Him we are nothing. Without Him we would starve to death, we would thirst to death, and then we would be left to the bitter waters in the wilderness. But the Lord shows us as we depend and learn to trust in Him, He takes the bitter waters of the trials of life and the sufferings in our wilderness, turns them into something far sweeter. That One day you and I get to see the, the river of life flowing from His throne produces fruit on either side. And as Revelation tells us in chapter 21 and 22, come and freely drink all who will come. That is the beauty of what God has provided for us. Now in chapter 16, verses 1-12, through 12, we find not only had they gone from being thirsty and then God providing 
the, the change from the bitter water to the sweet water and providing what they needed. And as well, in verse 27, we see that they, uh, they find 12 wells of water and three score and ten palm trees, and they camp there by the waters. Things are good there. And then in verse, uh, chapter 16, verse 1 through 12, we, saw, we see the manna in the wilderness. They took their journey from Elam, and the congregation of the children of Israel came into the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai on the 15th day of the second month after their departing on the land of Egypt. And the whole congregation of the children of Israel murmured against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. They do a lot of murmuring, don't they? <laughs> so do we. They've always got something to complain about. Now think about this. You ever known somebody in your life that they've only got something to complain about? Don't seem to have anything good to say. Don't seem to have anything to, to praise the Lord about. Never have any sort of positive. About. Look, you've got normally a few different kinds of people. You've got uh, you know, the, the Eeyores of life, right? Everything's bad, right? And then you've got Tigger where, hey, I'm just going to bounce. Everything's great. I don't know anything's bad, right? And then somewhere in the middle, you've got a, a Winnie the Pooh, I guess, who sees some good and some bad in between it all, but he's just going to eat some honey and be happy and move on with life. I'm not sure which way we ought to handle these things, but I know that living in these extremes is not a good place for us to live. Now, here's what happens is they quickly begin to murmur. And why do we murmur against the Lord? Ultimately, it's because we're unsatisfied with Him. They were not satisfied with the water that He had provided for them. They thought, well, this is great. Okay, we survived. Now we're moving out in the wilderness. And, and what happens? We begin to, they begin to murmur again. And the children of Israel said unto them, would to God we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt. We sat down by the flesh pots and we did eat bread to the, fill, to the full. For ye have brought us forth into the wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. They sound like a little kid on a road trip. I'm tired. I'm hungry. Are we there yet? I'm starving to death. You ever said that you're starving to death? Now, were you actually starving to death? No. Here, they're hungry, but God will provide. And once more, instead of seeing, okay, well, we were thirsty, and He provided for what we needed, and now we're hungry, well, this is an opportunity for God to show Himself faithful. But the times of desperation and the times of need in your life in the wilderness should be times of excitement because you get to go, well, I get to watch the Lord work. I get to watch the Lord provide. I get to watch God be God. And me trust in Him and to see answers to prayer... That should be an exciting time when you've got a need. Do not get so down where you go, oh, well, I've got another need again. Go, oh, well, I've got another need, and I just know who to go and talk to about this. It's the Lord that can provide, so therefore I'll go to Him for every need. But notice the way that they murmur. Notice the way that they complain. They talk about Egypt like it was wonderful. We sat down by flesh pots. We did eat bread to the full. Life was good in Egypt. They skipped over the whole part of we were beaten, abused, and killed, enslaved. We were made our jobs daily even more difficult. But they're like, oh man, life in Egypt was great. Now what do we picture, uh, we see the Bible picture Egypt as? It's a picture of the world. It is a picture of life without Christ and knowing Him. Here's what happens. We face a little bit of adversity and we go, well, things were better before I was a Christian. Things were easier then. I wasn't struggling when I was in the you know, back in Egypt. Egypt was great. You know, sure we were enslaved and sure things were hard, but you know, it wasn't the wilderness where we've got no food, no water, no nothing. 
Here, you brought us out here, Moses, just to kill the whole assembly with hunger. Then said the Lord unto Moses, if you and I were the Lord, by the way, we're probably not saying what He says. We're probably going, okay, you know what? Y'all think y'all are hungry? Oh, I'm going to show you how hungry you can be, right? You're going to bed hungry. You're going to wake up hungry. You're going to school hungry. You're walking another day hungry, right? You want to complain that way? Look at what I've done for you thus far. But the Lord doesn't do such here. The Lord said unto Moses, He says, Behold, I will rain bread from heaven for you. God still yet says, even though they are murmuring and complaining against Him, He says, All right, but I'm still going to provide. Why? Because that's who God is. This shows much more about His character than it does theirs. We already know their character. They're tossed about to and fro. Things don't go their way, so they pout. They throw a temper tantrum. But we see God's faithfulness throughout all this. And it says, And the people shall go out and gather a certain rate every day that I may prove them whether they will walk in my law or no. Now, here's what we often forget. And we know the rest of this passage. We'll get into it in just a moment. We, we know about the manna. Here's what God does. He gives the instructions here. He says, Each morning, I'm going to put manna on the ground with the dew. You've got a certain amount that you can go and provide. You've got six days to do it. On the sixth day, you get what you need as well for the day of rest, for the Sabbath day. All right. Now, why does he say here uh, this? He says in verse 4, that I may prove them whether they will walk in my law or no. God could have just filled their bellies. God could have just kept them from being hungry or even feeling a rumbly in their tumbly. But what does he do? He says, I'm going to put manna on the ground and I'm going to tell them where it's going to be when it's going to be there, and how much to collect it, and why they're to collect it. I'm going to give them all the instructions, and now the choice is theirs. What would you do if you go home, got no groceries, but the Lord says, hey, don't you worry about that. Tomorrow morning, I'm going to give you what you need. It's just going to be on your front yard with the dew. You're going to go collect it, right? You'd like to think that's what you would do. But now this is the test of faith. Will you trust God's provision? Will you trust His instruction? Will you trust His Word? This is where the rubber meets the road. He says, whether they will walk in my law or no. And it shall come to pass that on the sixth day they shall prepare that which they bring in, and it shall be twice as much as they gather daily. And Moses and Aaron said unto all the children of Israel, at even ye shall know that the Lord hath brought you forth out from the land of Egypt. Now this should not even be a question at this point. But he says, at, by evening time, you're going to know that God is the one that brought you out of Egypt. They're still questioning it. They've seen the plagues. They've seen the, the cloud by day, the fire by night. They've seen the Red Sea parted and walked across dry land. They've seen where they were drinking bitter water and God took a tree and, and said, put it in there and I'll make it sweet. And he did, and now they go, well, we're hungry, and so I guess God hates us, and we were better off to die in Egypt. It says, and in the morning, then you shall see the glory of the Lord. Why does God take us to the wilderness? Why does God provide, even though we murmur and complain against Him? So that we might see His glory, and that He might get the glory. Why? Because if we could have done our salvation on our own, if we could have made ourselves more righteous, if we could have pleased Him on our own, our own flesh, our own works, well, then we would get the glory out of it, not He. If they could have delivered themselves from the Egyptians, if they could have dug their own wells, if they could have provided all the food, they could have started growing crops, or they could have uh, brought everything that they needed, 
or if they could have busted out the MREs. What we find, none of those things. But why? Because they would have gotten the glory. But here we find that God alone gets all the glory for their deliverance. So we, for generations, they would look back and they would go, look at what God has done for us. For he that heareth your murmurings against the Lord, and what are we that you murmur against us? And Moses said, This shall be when the Lord shall give you in the evening flesh to eat, in the morning bread to the full, for that the Lord heareth your murmurings, which ye murmur against him. And what are we? Your murmurings are not against us, but against the Lord. There's your answer. He says, You're not really murmuring against us. It's not us that you're upset with. You're upset with God. You're upset with his provision. Ultimately, they're doing what their parents, Adam and Eve, did in the garden. They're questioning God's goodness and provision. And Moses spake unto Aaron, saying unto all the congregation of the children of Israel, Come near before the Lord, for he hath heard your murmurings. And it came to pass, as Aaron spake unto the whole congregation of the children of Israel, that they looked toward the wilderness, and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, I have heard the murmurings of the children of Israel, speaking unto them, saying, At even ye shall eat flesh, and in the morning ye shall be filled with bread, and ye shall know that I am the Lord your God. So here's what's going to happen. In the evening, they get quails, bird that come in, they get to eat flesh. And then in the morning, they get manna. Now, where does this manna come from? It don't come from the bread store. It comes from the Lord. It literally comes from heaven. God brings this. And what we find is that God says, here's what I'm going to do. Here's how I'm going to do it. Here's why I'm going to do it. I'm going to do this to show you my glory, to show you once more who I am. Why? So that they would finally believe and trust Him. When we look at the life of Jesus... He has several times where he feeds people by the thousands. Y'all remember those, right? Those accounts. He's got one where he feeds 5,000 plus men that are mentioned. There's more than likely 15,000 or more, including women and children, perhaps. Then there's other times where he feeds 4,000 plus, right? And there's even scraps and leftovers. And even what happens is through all of it, he takes little and turns it into everything that is sufficient for every need and then some for all the people. And then what happens? They follow him from place to place, and he ends up dispersing them. You know why? Because he says, you're following me because I fed you. You're not following me because you believe in me. You're following me because you had a miracle and because you got what you were looking for physically. Sadly, the reality is that so many only follow the Lord when things are going good, when things are going their way, when they're getting their, their wish list answered, and then when things get difficult, this is where they stop following the Lord. If the sayings become too hard. Uh, the, the, the preaching becomes too difficult to understand or to accept. And so they go, well, I just wanted the healing. I just wanted the bread. I just wanted the fish. And so I'm out. And they would depart. The Lord then would look at His disciples and He says, will you go too? And they say, Lord, where else can we go? You have the words of eternal life. He Himself is the bread of life. We'll get into that in a moment. Here they're murmuring without the conveniences and comforts that they thought they had in Egypt, forgetting that they were in bondage. The people murmur once again. Here's a question for us all. If God can bring plagues, make His people walk across the Red Sea on dry land and provide sweet water, why wouldn't He be able to provide food? So, let me put it this way. If you're trusting that Jesus saved you from your sins and has promised you heaven, not by any works that you've done, but simply because of His grace, then why would we not trust Him to provide for everything that we have in this life? Of course we should, shouldn't we? 
If I can trust Him with the eternal, I can trust Him with the temporal. Furthermore, what we see is that when we forget God's presence and promises, then we forget about His provisions. When we forget that the Lord is there, when we forget that He has promised to be with us and has promised to take us to a promised land one day, then we forget about His provisions, that He is there. Failing faith is a forgetful faith. And a forgetful faith is a failing faith. Pink goes on and he says, in order for grace to shine forth, there must be the dark background of sin. Sometimes we often wonder why God put that particular tree in the garden. Sometimes we often wonder why there's wilderness. Sometimes we often why there's suffering and there's difficulty. Sometimes we wonder why God doesn't just keep us from our sin. But what we find is that ultimately we know God and who He is much more with a horrible and dark backdrop of sin. Think about this. As we look back to Calvary, as we look back to that tree, as we look back to what Jesus did there as He died there in the thick darkness, that is where we see God's grace and love seen the most, isn't it? There at the cross, there what Jesus did for us, there in the darkness, that's where we find love. That's where we find God's grace and mercy. And we would not know it near as much without that horrible backdrop of sin. You ever notice this in a jewelry store? They always, when they want to show you a, a diamond or, or necklace, whatever it is, they lay it up against some sort of black felt background so that way it looks all the more bright, right? And you don't know it's really fake and cubic zirconium all the time, right? They want to show you, look at how bright this is. Think about this. God's grace shines so bright because our sin is so black and horrid. Furthermore, we find that the Christian shines the brightest in the darkest of our li- in the darkest moments of our lives, in the midst of wilderness and the darkness of it. That is where the Lord allows us to shine for Him. Now, manna and meat is provided by God. God reveals His provision of daily manna, but faith must respond by picking up what God has provided. Meaning this: grace reveals, but faith must respond. God's grace provides this manna and this meat for them, but faith must go out and collect it. Faith must as well obey God's commands and to collect it when He says to collect it and to collect how much He says to collect and to rest on that day of rest to be reminded that one day there will be an ultimate and eternal Sabbath rest. God reveals all the who, what, when, where, why, and how questions of His daily provided manna and meat. And God provides for those that complain against Him to show His grace, His love, and mercy to all who will receive it. And yet we find that they're not done after this episode with their murmuring and complaining, are they? And neither are you and me. We've still got some more murmuring in us as long as we've still got some wilderness in us. The issue is this. God was not only seeking in the wilderness to get His people out of Egypt. He was seeking in the wilderness to get Egypt out of His people. Far too much of Egypt had gotten into His people. And here we find the wilderness is to purify us and to cleanse us and to get the world out of our hearts so that the Word would be in our heart and that we would simply trust Him at His Word. God revealed His glory once more in the wilderness by mercifully providing for them. And I want to look at just a moment here. John chapter 6. John chapter 6. John chapter 6, verse 35. First off, this comes after he starts getting asked about bread from heaven, and he says, 
his disciples come and they said, Lord, well, they said unto him, Lord, ever give us this bread. Evermore give us this bread. And Jesus said unto them, I am the bread of life. Verse 35, chapter 6, John. He that cometh to me shall never hunger, and he that believeth on me shall never thirst. But I said unto you that ye also have seen me and believe not. Now here's what's interesting. Jesus says, you see me, but you don't believe. Well, here, God revealed to the children of Israel there in the wilderness as they are hungry and thirsty and all these things, He has shown Himself in the pillar of fire by night and the cloud by day. Here in uh, Exodus 16, He says, in the morning, I'm going to show you My glory once more. I'm going to show you who I am. And they still don't believe. This would be the pattern of the nation of Israel, and it still is to this day. But one day, they will see Christ when He returns, and they will believe But until that day, we must preach the gospel. And for you and I who have seen the Lord by faith, we must continue to trust that He remains the same. That He still remains sufficient for every need. He says, All that the Father giveth me shall come to me, and him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. For I came down from heaven not to do mine own will, but the will of Him that sent me. And this is the Father's will which hath sent me, that all of which He hath given me I should lose nothing, but should raise it up again the last day. And this is the will of Him that sent me, that everyone which seeth the Son and believeth on Him may have everlasting life, and I will raise Him up in the last day. Then the Jews murmured at Him. (laughs) Same as Exodus, right? They murmur against the One that they should trust and believe. They murmured at Him because He said, I am the bread which came down from heaven. And they said, Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How is it then that He saith, I came down from heaven? Jesus therefore answered and said unto them, Murmur, not among yourselves. No man can come to me except the Father which hath sent me draw him and I will raise him up the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they shall be taught, that shall be all taught of God. Every man therefore that hath heard and hath learned of the Father cometh unto me. Not that any man has seen the Father, save he which is of God, he hath seen the Father. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that believeth on me hath everlasting life. I am that bread of life. Your fathers did eat manna in the wilderness and are dead. Why? Because eating the manna daily would not mean that you live forever. It simply means that you trusted God for that daily provision. This is the bread, Jesus says, which cometh down from heaven that a man may eat thereof and not die. I am the living bread. At first he said, I am the bread of life. Now he said, I'm the living bread. Because I'm the living bread which came down from heaven. If any man eat of this bread, he shall live forever. And the bread that I will give is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. Now these murmurers, these complainers, these unbelievers, what do they say in verse 52? The Jews therefore strove among themselves, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? They're thinking, he's going to make us go around and take nibbles off his arm or something? We don't understand what this means. He's going to give us his flesh to eat? And Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, except ye eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, ye have no life in you. Now let's pause for a moment. Here's the Roman Catholics get uh, the Lord's Supper wrong. They believe that the Lord's Supper turns into the literal body and blood of Jesus. And here's what they do. Every time that they partake of the Lord's Supper, they are crucifying Him afresh. I want you to know the cracker and the juice, or for the, the Catholic, the wine and the bread, it does not become literal flesh and literal blood. That's cannibalism. It's sick. It's twisted. And it's a misunderstanding of Scripture. Here what Jesus is saying is, I am offering up my flesh. I am offering up my blood. And I'm not calling for you to take a bite. And I'm not calling you for to take a, a drink of my blood. 
He says this, that the only way that you receive it, it is what? It is spiritually received. By faith that you trust that His body and His blood broken and shed for the remission of sins is sufficient to save. He then says, For every last unto you, except you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no life in you. Whoso eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood hath eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is meat indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He that eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood dwelleth in me, and I in him. And the living Father hath sent me, and I live by the Father, so he that eateth me, he shall, uh, even he uh, shall live by me. Notice this. We're saved by him, and we live by him. There's never a moment that we don't need Christ. He says, this is that bread which came down from heaven, not as your fathers did eat manna and are dead. He that eateth of this bread shall live forever. Those who have trusted Christ and have received Him by faith, though we might die in the flesh, though our bodies might kill over, we will just begin to truly live. Life will just begin. It is everlasting life. As He said, He that believeth on Me hath everlasting life. It is not just an eternal future reality. It is a present reality that we have now in abundance of life and everlasting life. Uh, this bread and water, a living water, that we have satisfaction in the sufficiency of who Christ is and what He has accomplished for us. Now last, I want to look at the motivation in the wilderness. The motivation or the meaning here of why does the Lord bring them here? Exodus 15.26 and said, God speaks here, if thou wilt diligently hearken to the voice of the Lord thy God and wilt do that which is right in his sight and will give ear to his commandments and keep all statutes, I will put none of these diseases upon thee which I have brought upon the Egyptians for I am the Lord that healeth thee. Then in chapter 16, verse number 12, I have heard the murmurings of the children of Israel speaking to them saying that even ye shall eat flesh in the morning ye shall be filled with bread and ye shall know that I am the Lord your God. Here we find in these two verses the very purpose the very meaning, the very motivation of why God brings them into the wilderness. God's motivation in the wilderness is to reveal Himself by grace so that His own would respond to Him in faith so that they may enjoy His presence, His protection, His provision, and His promises. Ultimately, He brings them to a place where they must learn to trust and obey. And as we sing, trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus than to trust and obey. This is the very life of the believer. This is the pattern of life. Trust and obey no matter the situation or the season, no matter the circumstance, no matter the need, to trust and obey the Lord. Here in 1526, he says, Diligently hearken to the voice of the Lord thy God. Do that which is right in his sight, and he will and, and will give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes. Faith obeys the Lord. Faith is never on its own. Faith always has the work of believing and obeying the Lord. Faith and obedience are dependent upon one and the other. And here, we find that ultimately, why do we trust and obey? Why do we learn to trust and obey in the wilderness and in the difficult times? Why do we learn to trust and obey when it's the hardest to trust and obey? It is for this very reason. Chapter 16, verse 12, So that ye shall know that I am the Lord your God. The purpose of it all is so that we might know Him. If it wasn't for the wilderness, we would not know His provision. If it wasn't for the wilderness, we would not learn to trust His promises. If it wasn't for the wilderness, we would not know that His presence is always there. If it wasn't for the wilderness, we would not know that His protection is always there about us, even when we often don't see it or feel it. What we find is that the wilderness teaches us that He is the Lord our God. The past few weeks, we've been able to look at just a, 
a sampling of all that they would go through there in the time of the wilderness wanderings. But ultimately, I hope that each one of us, as we prepare our hearts for this coming conference, and ultimately for the, what the Lord wants for each one of us to receive and what we need to receive for whatever we've faced in our life, ultimately the purpose of the conference, ultimately the purpose for every service, ultimately the very reason why we exist, is this, to know Christ and make Him known. That is the mission statement of our church, and it's for a reason, because we find from whether you're in the wilderness or whether you're on the mountaintop of life, all of life is so that we might know Him more. To know the Lord means that we're going to have to go through some tough times. But it means that we'll know Him better than what we did if we didn't have them in the first place. Because there in the wilderness and there in the difficult times, we find God to be who He really said He is. Gracious, loving, merciful, provider, redeemer, reconciler. All these things that we need a wilderness in order to truly enjoy and to truly comprehend. So tonight, as we bring this to a close and we prepare our hearts for the week to come, may we learn to trust God in the wilderness. May we learn to even embrace it and to know that all of life is a wilderness wandering. But may we not make it harder on ourselves as the children of Israel did. The wilderness of this life is going to be all the more difficult if you refuse to obey the Lord by faith. But when we learn to trust Him in the wilderness, then we understand that the wilderness is just a season and that one day, when we leave this world behind, the promised land awaits. And what's the greatest thing about the promised land? It's not the location. It's the Lord that's there. That's the blessed hope. Let us pray. Father, we love You. We thank You for this night. We're grateful to study Your Word. I pray that we would receive it by faith tonight. That we would learn that all of life is so that we might know You. We might trust You. That we might believe You. That we might obey You. And that we might obey Your commands. Lord, help our hearts tonight to be filled and Lord, to be prepared for this upcoming week, God, that we might see how throughout each day this week that we might obey you and, and, and bring you glory and honor for all that you are and for all that you've done. In Jesus' name, amen.